0: Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.
2: West Side Fairy Tales is a dark fiction and horror podcast. The story you are about to hear is violent and disturbing. Exercise discretion before listening. Previously on Scars in Time. Ash's visions in her new home grow increasingly violent, leaving her shaken. The mayor, Bobby. Sends over a new mattress and bedding A kind gesture given his odd and horrifying threats From earlier in the day Ash's first dreams in that bed are terrifying Nightmares about living a life Where she'd married the boy who tried to rape her as a teenager Where even this dream version of her Is desperately trying to shake off That boy's vicious mesmerism for a single second A brief window Where she isn't control enough And brave enough to end that nightmare by killing herself. Ash wakes to the sound of rainfall, or, at least, what she thinks is the sound of rain. Without further ado, Scars in Time, Chapter 7. The Typewriter I slept fitfully, but I slept. Thankfully, none of that odd nightmare returned, but even then I wasn't thinking of it as much of a nightmare. I'd had bad dreams my entire adult life, especially about Michael Colan and the events of my last year of high school. But nothing so visceral as that first nightmare in my new home. It was bad enough that I was up long before Darcy, highly unusual and busying myself by getting the master bedroom situated. Our smattering of travel cosmetics and toiletries looked hilariously ill-suited to the massive room. It boasted both a shower and a bathtub, the tub being a variation on the clawfoot variety I had seen in the guest bathroom, though with the oddly, melted-in-place, affectations of the bedroom. The shower was large enough to walk around in, a closet in and of itself. The floors ran flush with the tile outside, which I thought was odd until I noticed the rusted, wrought-iron bars bolted to the walls inside. It's handicap-accessible, I thought to myself, running a finger over the metal that came back Cheeto-dust orange. I showered, giving the pipes a couple minutes to belch out old black water that had sat for several years before stepping inside. The bathroom itself was not a nice place to be naked. The heat was on to some degree when we arrived, but the autumn chill had penetrated the tile and the walls, making it seem terribly cold, no matter where I stood. The shower itself was wonderfully hot, however, and I enjoyed the feeling longer than I should have. "'Did you save any hot water for me?' Darcy asked when I got out. She was staring at herself in the mirror as she brushed her teeth. The upper half of the bathroom was clouded by a dense fog. The ceiling itself was high enough that both of our heads lay below the line of mist, which caught the light coming in through the window and gave the bathroom an otherworldly feeling. I tried, waving it away to no effect. There's at least enough for tea, I said, grinning. Darcy gave me a look in the mirror and I blushed. Sorry, I uh, had these terrible dreams last night. So you took a 30-minute shower? Darcy asked, turning to me. She was angry. Jesus, Darcy, I'm sorry, I said. She spit and wiped off her mouth, but a little toothpaste foam was hanging off her lip. She waved her hands. I've got to be at the new clinic, my job. In less than an hour, and there's no hot water for a shower? She asked. She wasn't yelling, but I could tell she wanted to. I was just kidding, I said. There might be more. I'm sorry. Shit. I stormed out of the bathroom and tried to find clothes before the chill of the house doused the lingering warmth of the shower. It was a quest I failed as I tried to figure out what to wear, standing shivering in my underwear for a good five minutes before finally deciding on jeans and a black T-shirt. It wasn't the sort of thing I normally cared about. "'cause all I really owned were jeans, t shirts and a smattering of button-up shirts "'and assorted flannel patterns. "'All that remained otherwise "'were a fine collection of different-sized hoodies, "'a suit I wore to funerals and job interviews, "'and a miniskirt I put on for Darcy when we role-played. "'I don't own much in the way of soft clothing "'or non-covering clothing. "'No sweatpants, just a few tank tops, "'and no leggings or any other sort of skin-tight thing.' All my clothing is of thicker, sturdier material, which I guess I subconsciously believe will stand up better to sliding down a mountain road. Hey, Darcy said. She emerged from the bathroom with an accompanying cloud of steam. It puddled on the ground and dissipated, leaving a few errant dots of condensation. She tossed her towel on the bed and started rummaging through her own clothes, which she dumped on her side of the bed while I was in the shower. Sorry, I got so mad at you. It's fine, I said. I actually was kind of hurt, but I let it go. Thanks for setting out all of our bathroom stuff, she said. I told her she was welcome and tried to find a decently warm pair of socks that were clean. Have you seen my belt? I stopped what I was doing and poked through her stuff. I shook my head and shrugged. She cursed. It might be in with the rest of our shit, she said. Fuck! She braced her arms on the bed and pushed down against it. God fucking damn it! She rounded away from the bed and went to the window I hadn't been able to open, pounding the meat of her fist against the wall. Jesus, Darce, are you okay? I asked. She sighed and nodded. I could see a corona of fog spreading away from where her head rested against the glass. She stayed there a second longer and then came back to the bed, seemingly fine again. I watched her pick through clothes until she was wearing a red button-up shirt and a tie. She spread her arms. How do I look? She asked, smiling. I smiled back at her, though I wasn't really feeling it. Good, I said. Great, actually. I hesitated. Do you... Are you feeling okay? She nodded and swept me into a tight hug. She had only a few inches on me in height, but more than 40 pounds in weight. I buried my face in her neck. I'm fine, she said. But these last few weeks have been... stressful. Very stressful. She sighed and pushed me away, holding me at arm's length. I just want everything to go good on my first day at the clinic. I just... I can't... She kissed me on the forehead and didn't bother finishing the sentence. We put on our shoes in silence and I packed her a small bag with some more comfortable clothing if... When? She decided to roll up her sleeves and get to work. Can you do me a favor and stock us up on groceries? She asked. Maybe buy some cleaning stuff at the store. I'm going to get some takeout from that place up on the hill for breakfast. She handed me the house key. The ugly black thing felt hot in my hand. And don't forget the movers should be here sometime between noon and four. I could go with you for breakfast. I said, pocketing the key. She shook her head. I'll end up spending more time there than I can afford to, she said. I heard there's a nice diner downtown on the Strip. I nodded and locked the door behind us. Darcy fumbled around in her shirt and handed me the card the kids from the day before had given us. I looked at it dumbly. You can't drive, she said. And you sure as hell can't carry all of what I need you to get at the store. If you need help, you should call those kids. I still don't have a phone, babe, I said. She squeezed my shoulder and gave a tight, rushed smile. "'I'm sure you can figure that out on your own,' she said. I would have glared at her, but I didn't want to start another argument. She must have sensed that I was angry anyway because she demurred some. "'Look, Ash, I need you to take care of some stuff on your own. I can't do everything. I'm not a fucking baby!' I said, pushing her hand off my shoulder. I stopped myself just short of reminding her I was nearly fifty, which would have made me sound like anything but an adult. Okay, was all she said in reply. We kissed, despite the hotness of the moment, a short, dry peck, before she turned and walked up the hill to the inclined platform. We'd made it all the way out of Old Town during that exchange, and I was stunned to see how much brighter the day was out on the strip. I stood like an idiot in the middle of the street for several minutes until I remembered I had stuff to do. Without Darcy around, I felt oddly untethered. We'd spent so much time together recently that it was weird not having her nearby to keep me grounded on the path. Still, I was an adult. Mildly insane, but an adult nonetheless. I resolved to have breakfast and spend the day running errands and doing chores like a normal, responsible person. I got four steps into gun cotton when I'd realized I'd left my wallet at home and had to go jogging back for it.
0: Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact? You can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states.
1: plushcare.com slash weight loss
2: hey there westsiders enjoying the program then hop on twitter reddit or your podcast app and let everybody know how great the west side fairy tales is taking a few seconds to rate us review us or share our latest episode and your thoughts on it helps get fresh ears on our stories and lets us rise up from the dark and sweltering pits of the sub-top 100 rankings. I know you folks appreciate a good summoning, so why not bring this eldritch and unseen thing to the unwedding masses? Utter our black name before your friends, family, and co-workers, and then tag us so we can retweet or share it. We're at WSFairyTales on Twitter and WestsideFairyTales on Facebook and Instagram. Click Link tree in the episode description For a comprehensive list of our social media Connections You can also send us an email at westsidefairytales@gmail.com. at gmail.com If your inner Circle of living people are too Undeserving of the Westside Fairy Tales, you can join Our little cult, the Westside Fairy Tales Horror and Lit Club on Facebook. We talk about the Episodes, books we've been reading, horror News, and all sorts of stuff So pop on by Thanks again for listening to the West Side Fairy Tales, and don't forget to give us a review on your favorite podcasting app after this episode. Now, back to our program, already in progress. I ate at the town diner, hilariously called the Bing Bang Boom, a breakfast of eggs, toast, and coffee. The restaurant seemed fairly alive, though it wasn't quite full. There was an odd feeling that the space needed more people in it. People that weren't there. So the usual busy restaurant din seemed insufficient. Almost piped in. The coffee was excellent, though. And the eggs were about as good as griddle-fried eggs ever are. A little burned, a little rubbery. I finished and paid up, tipping the waitress well, even though she barely looked at me. She was in her mid-twenties and short and fairly round with dull, fishy eyes and an old-school hairnet, gum cracked in her mouth when I gave my order and when I got the check. She had the chewing habit of a long-time former smoker. I'd hoped she'd be one of those friendly-type waitresses that you ran into in small towns sometimes, the kind of person who is excited you give even a single flat shit about their town and are dying to tell you about it. This woman was not that If anything, she put me in a hurry to leave the place The main street was lightly foggy Despite the rising sun Looking around, it almost seemed like the mist was pouring From beneath the branches overhanging the entrance to Old Town It moved, in fact, like that was the case Slightly liquid The ground clouds swept past my ankle like a low river to fade At the far end of the strip There was no one on the street at this time of day. In fact, the oddly festive atmosphere of our first night was completely gone, almost half-imagined. The town seemed so empty right then that it felt slightly haunted. Looking around and seeing nobody else, I wondered if, possibly, I was the ghost. I could hear some sounds here and there, however. The inconstant snap of a pneumatic nail gun from up in the neighborhood's A steady sort of rumble and hiss coming from inside of the Chatterley Brewing Company across the street. The occasional sound of children laughing. I tucked my hands in the pockets of my jacket and trudged through the mist toward Ellison's, hoping the place would be open and normal and easy to navigate. It was at the end of the strip on the right. The only other building on that side of the road that wasn't the massive white brewery. The department store building was made of brick and a few stories tall, though the top floors were all apartments. The front had been painted flat black in the past few years and then decorated with thick red stripes and the name of the place in big letters broken up by the windows and doors. Ellison's. There were only ten or so shopping carts in the entryway. I grabbed one and tried to make sense of the layout. It wasn't that the place was labyrinthine or anything— just that they seemed to sell damn near everything under the sun, and I couldn't figure out where to start. I wandered through two aisles of ugly clothes and cheap shoes before passing through hunting and fishing equipment, various camping sundries, an entire aisle of televisions and game consoles locked behind glass, and an aisle of pet supplies before finding the groceries I needed. There wasn't much in the way of selection, The milk was more expensive than what I was used to, but it was apparently from a nearby farm. They didn't have generic sliced cheese, either. You could choose from cheddar, mozzarella, blue, or goat cheese. All of that, along with the various cuts of beef, pork, and chicken, all came from local farms, too. The packaging was professional, but clearly homemade. And all the sell-by-date stamps were done by hand. The most impressive was the egg selection, ironically enough. Your choices were Henny Penny Farms eggs, Miss Pat's Blue Speckle Selection, and Miss Pat's Deluxe Emu eggs. The eggs were in order, brown, blue speckled, and big as fuck. I ultimately decided on a dozen blue speckled eggs and a single massive emu egg. I didn't even know if I wanted to eat it, but I damn sure wasn't not going to buy the thing. Twenty minutes later, my cart was all but full of the things I figured we'd need to start getting the house together. Mostly it was just food, but also a bunch of paper towels and bottles of cleaning agents and other things we hadn't bothered packing or had lost in the fire. Thankfully, our vacuum cleaner had survived, but the thought of actually vacuuming all the damn floors in this new place horrified me. I paid for everything at the counter and ended up spending an extra ten dollars for a set of reusable shopping bags with the Ellison's logo on the side. They were neat little things with straps that could be adjusted to turn each into a sort of backpack. I figured I'd just get a cart or something later for big trips, but for most food outings I could probably just bring a single bag. "'Do you guys have any sort of delivery service?' I asked the girl running the checkout counter. She was a quiet, dark-skinned girl with a big puff of natural hair that bounced whenever she moved her head. She gave me an odd look. You want delivery? She asked. You could have just called in then She fished around under the counter and pulled out a familiar business card. The kids again. I smiled and took it anyway, not wanting to explain that I'd already met Sean and his crew. It might take a while to get to it, though. It's just a bunch of kids from the old town orphanage. Oh, I said. How about that? The girl yawned and leaned forward on the counter, popping her shoulders and looking out the window. Something seemed to catch her eye and she muttered under her breath. I looked too, but couldn't see anything. So you ain't got a car or something? She asked. I, uh, no. I don't drive. I replied. She nodded and pursed her lips Me either She said It's not like you can really ever leave this town anyway So fuck it I just walk everywhere She shrugged Anyway, you can just take the cart home with you It's what most everybody else does They... They take the carts? I asked Looking down at my own plastic buggy Like it might run away for some reason Was it mine now? Yeah, but, like, they bring them back. Unless you want to look like some next-level Billy shit keeping a cart on your front lawn. She laughed. Then you're the people that just moved into one of them big houses in Old Town, right? Yeah, you can't be keeping shopping carts and shit out there. She was smiling to herself now, picturing it. So I can just wheel it home, I asked. Yep, she replied. You're lucky, too. When I was a baby, that bridge over there was completely fucked. They fixed it when I was like ten. That's actually where old man Ellison used to live before he died. Ellison as in, I said, trailing off and pointing at the ceiling. She nodded. Yep, she said. Not in the house you got, though. One of the further back ones, I think. Mr. Calvin owns it now, but he fucking hates old town, so he lives on the hill. Mr. Calvin? I asked. Calvin Beaumont? She said. He's lived here for forever. He draws cartoons for the papers out in Charleston and a few other places. Oh, no shit, I said. I realized I actually recognized the name. My dad used to make fun of the guy's little political cartoons in the paper. Yeah, you know him? She asked. Sort of. I said My name's Ash, by the way Ash Little Tree We shook hands Lele Rhodes The girl said Holding her name tag so I could see The name was spelled L-E-L-E But pronounced like Lele Nice to meet you, Lele I said Same She said She looked outside again and muttered Rolling her eyes Is something wrong? "'I asked. "'She gave me an appraising look and bit her lip. "'You ever get headaches out there in Old Town?' "'She asked. "'Like, you get sleepy or turned around or anything?' "'I opened my mouth but said nothing for a long moment. "'The question had caught me off guard. "'Um, no,' I said. "'Not... uh, "'Not really?' Was it foggy when you walked here, or like? She pulled out her phone and flicked her thumb over the screen to unlock it. 64 and sunny. She quoted that directly from the screen and gave me the same appraising look. Foggy, I said. She nodded slowly. Well, shit, she said. And welcome to Guncotton, I guess. What does all that mean? I asked. What? Lele raised a hand and shook her head Nothing, Miss Ash Nothing at all She said Concontin just has a way about it, I guess you'd say You'll get the feeling no time, but How do I say this? You know how little babies take to getting shots better when they don't know it's coming? This town's kinda like that What? I asked She chuckled and gave me a comically dark look I've already said too much She said with a fake vampire accent She smiled but saw how worried I was and then apologized Sorry, like I said, it's not a big deal Just take anything weird you see with a grain of salt And try not to freak out I guess She wrapped her fingers on the table and shook her head Ah, that didn't help, did it? I shook my head this time. I can't really say much else, Lele said. If you get a chance, ask Bobby about what's up with Gun Cotton. He's cool. I remember the vision of him threatening me and shivered. The thought of approaching him on purpose made my skin crawl. I suddenly felt like I needed to get home right away. Maybe, I said, turning to go. I stopped and shook away the odd, scared feeling. Thanks, a bunch, for being so helpful. Think nothing of it, Lele said. I pushed the cart through the front doors and froze, feeling something like static electricity rolling up the back of my neck. Across the street, leaning against the side of the bar where I'd gone with Darcy on our first night in town, was a man-sized dummy made of stacked wooden plates. I could barely see it in the shadows and low mist filling the alley beside the bar. But it was there. I felt cold just looking at it. It seemed... insane. Unreal. The thing shivered and made a low, heavy clattering noise. I could hear something else as well. A young voice singing a very adult rap song. I turned and saw the little boy from the day before. Albert bouncing along with the music in his headphones as he walked down the opposite side of the strip. he was only a few feet from the thing. I tried to call out to him, but he couldn't hear me. Then he was by the alley and the thing was over top him, arms high and waving. Albert saw it in the last second before it touched him. He yelped and jumped nearly a foot in the air, dropping his phone. It bounced once at the end of his headphone cord and then hit the sidewalk. I expected something horrible to happen to the boy. But he just stood there for a long second, looking down at the phone. Then he rounded on the clattering monstrosity, nearly two times his height, and swung his little fists at it, leveling a barrage of curses I would have found impressive if I wasn't about to die of a heart attack. But the boy's furious counterattack seemed to work just fine. The thing began to almost thunder as it wiggled and then it simply vanished. The effect was almost like coffee lightening to the color of the mug with too much added milk. Albert shook his head and bent to pick up his phone, rolling it over in his hands to make sure it wasn't broken. He seemed to notice me looking at him because he turned slowly and then broke into a relieved smile when he saw me. How you doing, man?" He shouted waving a hand. fine I said, holding my hand over my heart and catching my breath. I was too old to be getting scared like that. Are you... Are you okay? He raised his eyebrows and then realized what I was talking about, smirking and then looking back where the thing had been. Then he turned to me, tapped his chest with his fist twice, and threw a peace sign with the same hand. "'Do you need any help pushing your cart, ma'am?' he asked, not dwelling for a second on something that had almost scared me out of my mind. I was, in fact, still processing it. Not only had he seen the thing, a thing that normally would be some horror I alone was privy to and had to suffer through, but he didn't seem to give a single fresh fuck about what had happened. He worked something out on his fingers and then pointed at the cart." I'll help you push that back for 10 bucks," he said. and I'll unload it for 20. "I think I'll be fine," I said, not quite talking about the card. He shrugged and put his headphones on, squeezing a button to turn on the music. Then he smiled at me, raised a hand and skipped up Wall Street toward what I saw was a library. I watched him go and then turned to look back inside Ellison's. The register clerk, Lele, wasn't anywhere I could see, but I had a feeling she'd been watching everything. Maybe she'd even expected it, given the odd warning she'd passed me. I took a deep breath and centered myself again, kicking at the low mist around my ankles. Looking around, I saw it didn't quite continue up the hill or go much further than the far edge of Wall Street at the end of town. It was thicker, however, the closer it got to Old Town. I sighed and turned my cart in that direction, hoping the cobblestone roads outside my new home wouldn't be too much of a pain to push the cart over. My name is Tyler Bell, and I'm the host of the West Side Fairy Tales. For better or worse, this operation is basically a one-man show. I do all the writing, reading, editing, music, and the various other production aspects. Yui Breedlove does all the wonderful episode art you see online. If you're enjoying this episode, please consider compensating us for the experience. Anything, even just a dollar... Let's us know that you believe the West Side Fairy Tales is content you appreciate. You can donate to our efforts directly through the PayPal link on our website, westsidefairytales.com, or by pledging to support us on Patreon. For just a dollar there, you'll get access to these episodes without ads like this, and for $5 or more, you get access to members only content, including fully produced ebooks of the episodes and behind the story lore episodes. And at $10 or more, we'll start sending you special merch packs and a whole lot of other stuff. The West Side Fairy Tales is a -a one-of-a-kind production, and we can't thank you enough for just taking the chance to give us a listen. But odd, off-the-wall, incredibly unique productions like this are self-funded, and without the generous support of listeners like you, we wouldn't be able to stay on the air. So, please consider keeping great horror independent and supporting the West Side Fairy Tales today. Thank you, and, as always, stay safe out there. Now, back to our program already in progress. The cobblestone roads outside the house were an absolute fucking pain to push the shopping cart over. Not only did the wheels catch on the edge of literally every single raised bit of stone but they would spin completely sideways and get stuck in a crack every few yards or so. I ultimately found myself dragging the cart from the front, cursing and thanking God we'd gotten a house only slightly inside Old Town. By the time I got to our front gate, I'd given up on the cart entirely. I'm a small woman, and lifting the cart up the stairs to get all the way to the house was completely beyond my abilities. So I left it there at the gate and made several trips to unload my groceries. I piled most of the things on the empty floor just inside the front door. The colorful shopping bags looked anachronistic against the dusty floorboards. All the wood in the house was dark brown, it seemed, enough so that it looked black. There was tile in the center of the main hall, covered over with a massive, filthy rug I didn't know if we'd end up keeping or getting rid of. The rug had been red at some point, but stained gray-black from years of dampness. It looked, in fact, as though it had survived a flood the rest of the house hadn't experienced. I nudged it aside with my foot, catching a glimpse of some more ornate design hidden beneath the fabric. It was an interesting enough discovery that I considered actually trying to pull the rug away, but the thing probably weighed a hundred pounds or more and was filthy enough I didn't really want to touch it. I finished unloading my cart and dragged the bags into the kitchen to put the food away. Afterward, I crawled onto the massive wooden prep table and lay flat, looking up at the ceiling and trying to catch my breath. The groceries weren't all that bad, but fighting that cart through the cobbles outside had been something of a nightmare. Still, I was proud of myself, and the exercise made me feel good. I heard something like a snap and a thin trail of dust fell from the ceiling toward my face. I moved before it landed in my eye and watched the little crumbs of grit pile onto the table. I touched them with my finger and then looked up at the ceiling. There was another snap, and more dust. they not quite so much. I got off the table and looked around the ceiling. More snaps came, slowly, like a rainstorm, picking up its fury ahead of the first thunderous crack. The sound wasn't in the boards themselves, but somewhere higher in the house. It grew into a clattering maelstrom as I walked into the main hall. Small streamers of dust were popping and puffing across every ceiling. Even on the second floor, I could see them everywhere, like little Hollywood gunshots. The sound I could hear even more clearly now, pulling me, Calling me toward the staircase leading up to the third floor. There was a knock at the front door, and all the sound ceased. I froze on the second floor landing, my mind foggy about what exactly I had been doing. Another knock. I shook my head and tried to clear my thoughts. Another knock. I started walking toward the door, telling whoever was there that I was coming. But I felt an old, familiar feeling. Those heavy threads of air pulling at me. Suddenly tight and razor-thin. Almost cutting. I found two men, one young and the other old, standing at my door. The older man smiled and stretched out his left hand. I saw his other arm was missing up to the bicep. His sleeve was pinned up over what was left. I awkwardly shook his hand as he introduced himself. Dars Freely, he said. I'm with Loeb Transport. We're here to move your stuff into your, uh... He looked inside the house. Your new home. I looked past him and the other man to the street outside my house. A simple, white rental truck had joined Darcy's car and the shopping cart. But there were none of the boxy shipping containers they'd packed our stuff into. Where is everything? I asked. It should be here in about ten or so minutes, the man, Dawes, said. He jerked his thumb over his shoulder. I oversaw them pulling your boxes off the train in Beckley and then drove here ahead of the main group. Uh, Recon, I guess you'd say. The uh, roads out here can be difficult, and I had to make sure they could get in okay. Figured we could get some of the paperwork and introductions out of the way ahead of time. He held out his hand to the young man, who gave him a clipboard. Do you mind if we come inside? He asked. No, please, I said, stepping out of the way. Both men gave the place a long, hard look that I didn't quite appreciate when they stepped inside. I saw the outlines of a large feather tattoo sticking out of Daw's neckline. The young man had one, too, I noticed, though on the back of his hand. I thought it was strange but I didn't inquire. We walked to the kitchen, where Dawes went over the paperwork on the prep table. While we were talking, I could hear the sound of a large truck rumbling over the road outside. Dawes continued speaking to me, but tapped the young man on the shoulder and pointed out the door. He disappeared. A few minutes later, I could hear a chorus of male voices as they entered my front door. That's that, Dawes finally said, running his finger over the signatures I'd put on the paper. He smiled. Pleasure doing business with you. I shook his hand, awkwardly as ever, and then followed him into the main hall. I found myself relieved to see some of our old familiar things in the men's hands. A lamp, an end table, our television set. I almost sighed with relief when I saw the first box of my books getting set inside the living room. Along with these came boxes of decorations, Christmas, Halloween. The young man who'd arrived with Dawes gestured to the growing pile. You want these anywhere in particular? He asked, looking around at the ceiling. I could tell he was trying to ask where the attic was in a roundabout way. I hadn't been up there yet myself, but I knew the way. I asked him to follow me, and he did, motioning to one of the other men to grab another box and follow. Is this podcast so good you almost want to skin it and wear its bloody hide in the streets as a testament to your undying love? Then go to our merch store today at westsidefairytales.com slash merch and buy yourself a t-shirt. All proceeds go to support the show and our episode artist, Yui Breedlove, Love. It's a percentage of every sale. So, if you like the West Side Fairy Tales and want to support us and the amazingly talented woman who makes the art, head on over to westsidefairytales.com merch and purchase a mug, a hat, a sweatshirt, or a t-shirt. Head over to westsidefairytales.com slash merch today. Thank you and, as always, stay safe out there. Now, back to our program already in progress. The third floor staircase was hidden, sort of, in the wall that created the hallway for the master bedroom. Unlike the sweeping, curving staircase that led to the second floor, it was a straight, simple affair. Steep, too, but not terrible. The stairs opened directly onto the third floor, which was considerably smaller than the floors below it. Only about the size of our bedroom, in fact. There was no electricity, but the slatted ventilation windows on each wall let in enough daylight to see by. The men set down the boxes and nodded to me, asking if the rest of that sort of stuff should be put down on the third floor. I told them yes, and they bounded off downstairs. I would have followed them, but I heard a snap in the rafters above me. I lingered behind tracing the gaps in the boards with my eyes and finding the telltale trail of dust falling from the ceiling. I glanced at the light coming up from downstairs, appreciably brighter than what was available here, and then walked to the fourth-floor staircase. Looking up, I could see dust motes floating in amber light against the black backdrop of the ceiling leading to the fifth floor. The garret, I thought. Then... Unexpectedly, my garret. I climbed to the fourth floor, feeling like a teenager again, remembering that chilly October day when I had visited a house much like this in the woods with my friends. The fourth floor of that place had been an attic space as well, though almost entirely full of stuff. Old things covered in dusty drop cloths. It had been tight and I'd almost not noticed that the ladder in the middle of the space led to a smaller, secluded fifth floor. Now, in my future, I climbed the ladder again and tossed open the trap door. It was almost entirely dark. The windows I had expected were covered over in black paint. I knew they'd be new, but for some reason I had expected something different. I heard the snaps again, softer now, but all the more insistent. There was just enough beaded light coming through the cracks in the wood leading outside that I could see the desk set up there in the shape of an old swivel chair beneath a drop cloth. My feet made light, almost soundless scuffs on the floor as I pushed myself up through the doorway. It was like every noise was both muffled and magnified in this space, louder but rounded off on the edges. Another snap squinted into the darkness where it was coming from, reaching out with my hand, but I touched only a smooth surface of painted wood. Still, even the soft brush of my fingers against it made a sound that let me know there was a hollow behind that panel. I frowned and went back down the ladder, leaving the trapdoor open and heading all the way downstairs. I stopped on the second floor landing when I saw Dawes and some of his workers were holding the nasty carpet up and looking at the tile floor beneath. They saw me and dropped the thing back into place, going about their business like nothing had happened. Hey there, Dawes said. I could see his team had almost completely finished. Hey, I said, walking past him and looking over the boxes for the one I had in mind. He stayed close behind me. Uh, We're about done, he said. So I noticed, I said, finding what I was looking for and sliding it out of the pile. A couple of men moved to the stairs with boxes marked clothes and I moved out of their way. Do you have a knife? Yep, Dawes said, handing me a box cutter. Thanks, I said, taking it and opening the box. I dug out our little tool kit, a plastic box containing a flashlight, a few different types of screwdrivers, and other sundry work items. I pulled out a heavy-looking flathead screwdriver and put the flashlight in my pocket. Then I gave Dawes back his knife. Here you go. He nodded and pocketed the thing, putting his hand on his hip. You, uh, need help with anything? He asked. I pursed my lip and shook my head, walking back up the stairs in a hurry. I glanced back only once, furtively, almost as though I were getting away with some great sin. Dawes was lost in the crowd of his fellow workers as they moved around the first floor of my home, guessing where to best put our possessions. I should probably have been supervising to some degree, but I couldn't shake the urge to return to the garret. Then I was there. Shining the light around the small space and sweating a bit from my almost frantic ascent through the house. There was no alternate light source in the high, solitary room. The windows I saw were both immobile and wholly covered over with thick black paint. My flashlight danced over them, the desk and finally the chair, which I freed from its covering to find a fairly old, but surprisingly well-preserved, swivel chair. It was heavily built and upholstered with the same almost morbidly red fabric as the other leftover furniture in the house. I sat in it, noticing then that the trapdoor had a slight ridge of wood nailed down around the opening to keep the chair from rolling through the hole. The trapdoor itself never fell all the way open, but remained at slightly past 90 degrees, held in place by a thick canvas strap nailed into the wood. I plucked it and it made a satisfying thrum. Then I turned my attention to the thin wooden wall where I'd heard the snapping. The wall was just a slight outcropping beneath the window opposite the desk, made up to look like a sort of shelf. I could see rings of water stain beneath the dust that suggested somebody might have put plants up here at some point. But what I was aiming for was below all that. I traced over the faint hint of a square with my finger, a panel that had been closed and painted over a long time ago. Now with the light, I could see the tiny, singular depression where the pull knob had once been. It was gone, of course, but I had the screwdriver. Without much thought toward what I was doing, I jammed the tool into the painted gap, pushing hard to free the door. The wood groaned, popped, and then the small door cracked open, ripping thick slivers of paint free in the process. I looked down the ladder. For some reason, sure, I'd see Dawes or one of the other workers looking up at me from the fourth floor. There was no one. I was completely alone up here. I adjusted myself and shone my light into the space. There it was. The typewriter. A typewriter? I thought at the time. Though even then I couldn't keep my hands off it. Imagine a little kid at Christmas, me barely containing myself as I pulled a new toy from its package. Even if it had been another, more innocuous typewriter in a different, less sinister home, I would have been no less excited. My visions never led me to anything of real value. Having found this little treasure at the end of... of... of whatever I'd been feeling or seeing, it was wonderful. Or so I thought. It took me several long seconds to fish the thing out of its hidey hole. It weighed at least 20 pounds, and every surface seemed sharp and uncomfortable. Still, I managed, stepping gingerly around the hole and dropping the thing on the desk. It made a satisfying clunk, and the desk shook from the weight, but held. I sat in the chair and used my flashlight to better inspect it. It was a typewriter, but aside from that I had no expertise in any of its parts or workings. The shell was heavy black iron with thin tracings of gold scrollwork that tangled into the name of a company just beneath the keyboard. The letters read Blackwell Automatic Typewriter, and beneath that, Blackwell Mechanics, established 1885. I ran my fingers over the letters and then touched the keys. They were firm but mobile little disks set up in a typical QWERTY fashion. I pressed one down, the U key to be exact and the snap of the arm against the rolling wheel was immensely satisfying. I clenched my fists under my chin and squealed with excitement. I can use this, I whispered to myself. Maybe, maybe I can actually get writing again. I looked the machine over, seeing more and more parts and understanding literally none of what I was looking at. Finally, I turned the side knobs that moved the black rolling wheel, which I would later learn is called the platen. To my surprise, a small piece of cardstock popped up out of the typewriter. I shone the light down beneath it and then around in other parts of the thing. I honestly didn't know how it worked, but I was surprised somebody had left a piece of paper in it. I pulled it free, running my thumb over the odd, crooked letters covering it. A debt paid. It read, for services rendered The words were signed with a symbol resembling a moon and stars I could feel an echo in my head, unbidden when my eyes moved over those unfamiliar characters The starred crescent The voice in my head said A brief touch of pain, like an ice cream headache, loomed in the space behind my left eye By the time I rubbed my face to quell it, it was gone. I set the note down and turned my flashlight back to the little hidden cubby in what I was already thinking of as my new office. I was hoping that, perhaps, some supplies for the typewriter might be tucked away in that space as well. There was only one thing to find, however. A gentleman's brown umbrella. The very nice sword with a hooked handle like a walking cane I pulled it free and turned it over in my hands taking care not to fall into the open trap door some sour memory was boiling up in the back of my mind not quite yet to the surface then it dawned on me him it the umbrella man the thing popped open just then Startling me so bad, I dropped it and fell back against the desk. The flashlight fell from my hand and bounced off the floor with a heavy thunk. Then it was rattling down the ladder to the floor below. The umbrella sank down over it, covering the trapdoor perfectly and plunging the room into darkness. Blindly, I felt around for the desk, trying to get my bearings. I could feel them then. The cords of air fluttering back so thickly and so dense they almost felt tangible, as though I could simply reach out a hand and steady myself on them. What my hand did find were the keys of the typewriter, which I accidentally depressed all at once. Lightning burst outside, so brightly I could see through the windows, black paint and all. No, not that I could see through them, they simply weren't there. Gone. They were gone entirely. The world outside these empty frames was cracked and rocky and black and endless. Torrential rain fell through the ruins of my home and the town beyond, soaking all of us, soaking everything. All save him. The great fat beast of a man floating in the air before me with his umbrella over his head. His silly putty face shifted and birthed a winking eyeball mustache, and half a smile. He stretched out his hand to me, and I could see them, silvery and glittering, his fishhook fingers. Then all was silent and dark, save for the sound of my own screaming. Episode on Scars in Time Ash tries to shake off the images that accompanied her discovery in the attic Pondering what or who might have left those things there When the ancient and overtaxed electrical grid in her house dies, however She's forced to track back into guncotton in search of a temporary source of light Something strong enough Hopefully to beat back the black and smoking shadows trying to creep up from the basement. I hope you'll join us next episode for Scars in Time, Chapter 8, The Lantern. And until then, as always, stay safe out there. The West Side Fairy Tales is written, read, scored, and produced by Tyler Bell original audio filmed on location in sutton west virginia and louisville kentucky engineering and sound design by wsf productions llc episode art by Yui breedlove all content here in copyright 2020 wsf productions llc
0: Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade.
2: Something's not quite right in the quiet mountain town of Targrady, West Virginia. Months after a local teen was lynched in the dead of a hot summer night, two men stand charged with murder in what the majority opinion considers to be an open and shut case. But Adelaide Stevenson... A young crime reporter from Charleston is finding out the smallest cracks in the official narrative run far, far deeper than she could have ever expected. Join Adelaide and West by God as she navigates small-town secrets, the dubious ethics of her own profession, and the dark whispers of an ancient creature, known to some as the Witching woman, who prowls the shadowed hollers that lie between night and nightmare. Sent on overnight assignment to cover the start of the trial, Adelaide quickly realizes the story she's been told, and been telling doesn't make sense. Cryptic assertions of a concrete alibi are emailed to her by the family of the accused. Nobody in town seems comfortable discussing the basic facts of the case, and the murder she's been writing about wasn't the only tragic death this summer. Adelaide extends her stay against the wishes of her editor, and her investigations take a complicated and dangerous turn as she discovers the true depths of the mysteries surrounding Targrady. The only real evidence from the night of the murder may lie in the hands of a notorious local crime family led by an enigmatic woman known as the Fetid Queen. Local authorities seem to grow more hostile by the hour, and even Adelaide's own career might not survive this assignment. Featuring an eclectic cast of characters ranging from violent and horrifying to outlandish and fabulous, West by God is a must-read novel for anybody who enjoys Twin Peaks, Stephen King, and all the creepy places you find just off the path in the woods. It is the debut novel of Tyler Bell, a USMC infantry combat veteran, former crime and courts reporter for the Charleston Daily Mail, and creator of the award-winning West Side Fairy Tales horror and dark fiction podcast. Due for release by Henlow Press in October of 2023. Learn more at westsidefairytales.com slash westbygod.